want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at that passage in just a moment, looking at a verse in that chapter in just a moment. It's good to see everyone out this morning. I, I would just like to amend one, one announcement. I, I don't know if this was made. I was locking the door downstairs, uh, making sure that it was locked downstairs when the announcements were given. But there's one thing uh, in the bulletin about Michael Lawson. So I thought that he was supposed to have a procedure done yesterday, and then I thought about it and I realized yesterday was Saturday. So he's actually preparing today for an operation tomorrow. It's a, a routine operation, but still something that he wanted the prayers of the congregation here on. Again, that may have been said, but I was trying to make sure that the door was locked downstairs. So uh, if it was, you get a double portion. Just a reminder to make sure you keep him in your prayers. <clears throat> As I said, though, it's always good to be with brethren and be able to study God's Word a little bit morning I would like to begin by reading just a couple verses here in Galatians chapter 3 and then kind of segueing into what I want to talk about uh, as, as we go throughout our study. In Galatians chapter 3 in verse 23 it says, but before faith came we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now, <clears throat> when you read a passage like that, I think that there are many applications that we're supposed to make. I think there are many points that we're supposed to take from what, what Paul is trying to get across to the Galatians here. What I thought was interesting, though, as I was searching throughout uh, several articles this week about this study uh, in particular, there was one article that was titled, What Does the Bible Say About Legalism? And they used this passage uh, as their reference. And I wanted to just put this up on the screen so you can see how they defined it. As they talk about legalism, they say it is a term Christians use to describe a doctrinal position emphasizing a system of rules and regulations for achieving both salvation and spiritual growth. Legalists believe in and demand a strict literal adherence to rules and regulations. Doctrinally, it is a position essentially opposed to grace. Those who hold a legalistic position often fail to see the real purpose for law, especially the purpose of the Old Testament law of Moses, which is to be our schoolmaster or tutor to bring us to Christ. <clears throat> now, I don't know about you, but it really seems like this person who is much studied and trying to answer a very specific question of what is legalism, when you read this passage, I don't even know if they understand what legalism means. <laughs> And I'll tell you, this is the modern understanding, the, the typical understanding of most people today when you hear the word legalism or legalist. And, and ultimately what I think they're saying is, especially this person, because it's interesting, they get very specific in some areas. They say it's a doctrine completely opposed to grace. But then in other areas, they, they kind of leave it vague. For instance, the, the, it's a system of rules and regulations for achieving both salvation and spiritual growth. It is a doctrine, a doctrinal position emphasizing a system of rules and regulations. Now, they don't say whose, they just say it carte blanche. And I think that there's a problem there. There are some places that are very specific. Other places that are just very vague. And ultimately, what I think they're trying to get across is, is what most people do when they call someone a legalist, is they're trying to say that people that focus too much on obedience to God is a legalist. And therefore, 
If you're that kind of a person, then you really don't care about God's grace. Or even more than that, you're opposed to God's grace. Like I said, this is the typical understanding today. And, and so with that being said, I want to ask the question, what about you? If, if you're taking it from that standpoint, are you a legalist? Does that describe you? And, and, and what we're going to see throughout this study is that this modern definition of legalism not only misses the point or misses the mark on what it actually is, but it also opposes certain New Testament doctrine for the Christian today. So, and, and, and I'll just say that that's going to be the first two main points is just answering the question, this is not legalism to focus on obedience. It's not legalism to say that God commands obedience from us. And then we'll end with what legalism actually is. But I think we do need to start with that typical understanding, the modern translation of what this means. And once, once again, obedience is not legalistic. Stressing obedience. First of all, nothing short of complete obedience is commanded by God. Go over to Matthew chapter 28 very quickly. <clears throat> you might just put a bookmark here because we're going to be going to Matthew several times. Matthew chapter 28, at the very end of the book, the very last verse, in the great commission that Jesus gives, as he says in verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Interesting word to use there if obedience doesn't matter. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is Jesus saying here? You better teach them to not only realize that I have all authority, but that I have authority over you and everyone else. And that they are to observe. What is, what, what is Jesus essentially saying here? They need to obey me. You all need to obey me. Obedience is a key factor from the very beginning before he ascends into heaven and before the uh, church is established in Acts chapter 2. And, and it's always been the case. And so if, if, if God has commanded obedience, is it really something that we want to condemn? Is it really something that we want to make people feel bad about when they also stress obedience seems to be a big deal to God because, you know, he literally requires it from us? I don't think it's something that we want to condemn. I don't think it's something that we want to even trivialize. Over in Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, another very interesting passage because look at what it says here. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now, this is talking about who but Christ. It's not just talking about anybody. So, in, in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 5, Christ himself had to obey. What kind of hubris, what kind of pride to think that we won't have to obey? Hey, Jesus, he learned obedience. He did everything that needs to be done, and so nothing's required. for. That's essentially what people are saying. When they say obedience is legalistic. No, no, it's not. Now, if you want to say obeying someone other than God is legalistic, yeah, you may have a case there. But just to keep it vague and say it's a very strict, literal adherence to rules and regulations. If it's of God, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess I would be a legalist if that were the case. And so what they're doing is trying to, to, to blend, um, they're, they're trying to make it vague so that way they can make a case. Essentially what people are saying is, you, this person believes differently than I do and I don't like it, so therefore they're a legalist. They're a Pharisee. That's just not fair. And that, oftentimes that's reductive. And so first of all, it's commanded by God. But secondly, God directly, directly ties salvation to, uh, and obedience. Keeping in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9, after it talks about Jesus <clears throat> learning obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him, what? The source of eternal salvation. 
being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, isn't it interesting that he starts by saying Jesus himself was obedient to the Father, and so therefore we probably should be too. But then he goes on to say in verse 9, and he becomes the source of eternal salvation to who? Not to those who disobey, not to those who don't care about his word, but to those who obey. Again, very interesting how God very closely ties this together. Now that's on the positive. Look at the negative in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 in verse 6 beginning. It says, for after, all, it is only just, uh, for after all it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels to, in flaming fire. Verse 8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so on one hand, and there are many other passages we could go to, but these are, I think, just some of the most pointed on the one hand, he is the source of eternal salvation to those who obey. On the other hand, who are those who are going to be afflicted? Who are those who are going to receive that judgment and, and, a, and a terrifying judgment at that? Those who don't. And so I don't think that the Bible is unclear about this. It is not vague. And so it's funny to me when other people come in and try to make it vague. It's interesting what maybe they're trying to teach. But as you, as you would make these arguments, what often comes up, the, the objection that often comes up is, well, then what you're doing is teaching salvation through good works. And I just think there's a few questions that we need to ask when someone comes to us like this. You know, you, what you're saying is that you gain salvation through good works. First of all, I think we need to ask, what do you mean by that? I mean, honestly, do you think that we must do nothing? Is there, is there nothing that we must do to attain eternal life? Now, some people would say, well, you've got to have faith, but that's not a work. Oh, yes, it is. Look in Romans chapter 1 and verses, uh, in verse 5 and Romans chapter 16 and verse 26. It's almost as if Paul is trying to indicate as bookends of the, of the whole letter. He starts by talking about faith as obedience of faith. And then in the end, he says the exact same thing, the obedience of the faith of Jesus Christ. And so faith itself is a work to a degree. I mean, there's no other way around it. And so somebody's going to have to get themselves out of that bind trying to contradict what the Bible itself says, what God himself has said. But maybe you go to something else, not just faith, but you talk about confession. I think you could say the same thing. Even that's a work because if you don't confess, what's going to happen? Well, of course, God's not going to accept that kind of faith. If you're not willing to confess his name, confession really isn't a work. And so I think we need to just ask very pointed questions when people come with this kind of objection. But, but especially, really, really press on the fact, what do you mean by that? That salvation, through, that, that, that salvation through good works is not a good thing. Salvation through good works. If someone means that they have done enough that God obligates or is obligated to give them salvation or that God owes them salvation, I, I, I could say granted but let me tell you something, I've never met one person, one, who has ever advocated that. I have never met one person who has ever said, God owes this to me. Never. And I've never even read an article about that. I'm sure there, there are some out there, but I, it's never come across my feed. What usually happens is you have people that, that maybe are legalistic, but in the biblical sense, but most of the time what you have are people who says essentially that, that salvation through good works is wrong and, and you are saying that because you're stressing obedience. That's, that's not fair. <laughs> and if, 
When, when you ask that question, what do you mean by that? If someone is, is saying that this is someone who does what God says, that's a legalist. No, that's just a true servant of God. That's a sincere servant of God. Or this is someone who emphasizes that you must adhere to all of God's laws we read at the beginning. If you're talking about God's law, then I don't know why you're complaining. Because it says, it says in 1 John 5 and verse 3, God's laws, God's commandments are not burdensome. So no, this is a true servant of God that wants to obey him. This is a true advocate of his word. And they're only focusing on being heralds of the king. And so no, it's not fair to say that obedience is legalistic. It's absolutely not. Just from the few passages that we've looked at, we could look at several, several more. But obedience is not legalistic. It is just commanded. And when one does that and stresses it, it's someone that cares about God. Now we need to come to that second question, which is, does obedience oppose grace? And spoiler alert, it doesn't. In fact, I think people tend to downplay grace. And, and really, they make it almost an insignificant thing when you take this commandment of obedience out. And so first of all, if you want to go ahead and turn to Titus chapter 2. <clears throat> Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Look at how grace and obedience, uh, again, are tied together as we said a moment ago. Titus chapter 2 in verse 11 beginning. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So what does grace do? It literally teaches us to obey. <laughs> and, and so from the very beginning of the passage that we just read, he talks about grace and its goal, what it's commanding, is that not only we do certain things, but that we stop doing other things. That we stop participating in lawless deeds. And I like that, that kind of translation when you look at that. And instead of giving yourself over to lawless deeds, what, you, what are you doing? But you're giving yourself over to the law of God. You're committing yourself to obeying his commands and his decrees. And so if God says that these harmonize together, grace and obedience, who are we to come up and say, no, they don't harmonize at all. You don't understand what that word means. <laughs> I think God understands what the word means. And I think that he very clearly communicates this fact. And so let's not be so bold as to say, no, 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 no. People just didn't understand. I, I think they did. And I think we can understand it just the same today. And so, so to say that they oppose each other, it really is blatantly rejecting, rejecting God's word and his will. And, but I would even go further than that. Not only is it a rejection, but it is a distortion of God's word. It's not just an outright rejection, but it is trying to change and alter, add to or subtract from the word that God has given us, the full revelation that God has given us. And I just want to uh, make that point. First of all, you look at what Paul says about the kind of person that does this in Galatians chapter 1. Just as a reminder, Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. And, and it, it, make sure that you're, that you're turning to these scriptures with me because I think it, does, it really does emphasize it in your mind when you see it with your own eyes. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. So once more we start with the grace of Christ and then what does he go to? A different doctrine, a different gospel. 
which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And you could just continue on with the next couple of verses, but just understand that Paul makes it, it, it's such severe language. If you come in and you try to change what God has said, essentially, if you try to change by taking away or adding to or just you know, maybe just slightly altering, you have distorted the gospel. You are a false teacher. You are accursed. And so this isn't, this isn't just people having a misunderstanding. It is a misunderstanding, but it's more than that. You are preaching something that is not in the Bible. And so I think that there is a reason that we have to stress this over and over again. There is a reason that we have to stress obedience. And it's because people don't care about obedience. They don't want to obey God. That's the whole problem. And so what do they do? They come in and they try to act like God has said something that he hasn't. Or they, they, they try to take away from something he's already said. And so we need to be so careful that we don't join in this by saying, well, granted, we got to figure out what people mean. Because I don't want to concede to a false doctrine. I don't want to concede to false teaching. But people do this all the time in the religious world. And I would say, maybe not necessarily always purposefully, but even if it's accidental, you're still partaking in that kind of false gospel. Now, I want to look at a, 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 at least one example of how people do this today. In Ephesians chapter 2, in verses 8 through 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no, no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So once more, I love this because people usually just read verses 8 through 9 and they just completely leave off verse 10. It's a part of the thought. Not only are you supposed to grab a hold, take hold of this grace that God has extended to us, but you also are people who are created in Christ Jesus for good works. But we tend to leave that off. But, but that's not even the main part. In verse 9, when people use this word works, almost all the time, almost all the time, they have no idea what they're talking about. They, they tend to bring the modern debates into what uh, Paul is trying to say all throughout the New Testament, and even James to some degree. They say, well, the, really what's going on is uh, this is just settling a debate between John Calvin. John Calvin wasn't even, wasn't even alive at this point. And so let's not bring our, you know, let's not bring Calvinism into it. Let's not bring any false notions into this. What is the context of the first century? A lot of times works is just terribly misunderstood today in the New Testament. And it's just because that people are not looking at the lack of context. And, and, and so what you have essentially is because of this lack of context, because of this misunderstanding, they view this word works. And what they're trying to say is what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2 is that you're saved by grace and you just forget about obedience. And they may not say it like that, but that is the conclusion. It, you are saved by grace and obedience has nothing to do with it whatsoever. In fact, obedience, you shouldn't even be thinking about obedience. And, and so that is, I think, the, the, the current, I would say, the current understanding of most of the religious world today. In fact, you go over to a passage like Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. This is another passage that they would go to. It's just as a brief side point. Romans chapter 4 and verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father according to the flesh has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And so what do, they, what, what do people tend to say with even a passage like this? Well, Abraham, look... The Bible is so clear. He wasn't saved by works. He wasn't saved by obedience. 
And again, I just, I go back to how he starts in Romans chapter 1. You have the obedience of the faith, I'm sorry. So we just completely forget about that. But lest you think that, that, uh, that, that um, we're just kind of neglecting the fact that, that this is what Paul says. You go to Romans chapter 2 and verse 6, and I would just study this out. The same word in the New American Standard, it says that God's going to judge them according to their deeds. It's the same word that's used in Romans chapter 4 and verse 2 for works. And so, y- yes, in here they say Abraham was justified by works. They're, they're trying to say obedience doesn't matter. But then in Romans chapter 2, Paul says, the same man says, but people are going to be ju- judged according to their works. And so automatically, they're contradicting, they're contradicting other parts of the scriptures. Now, that's just kind of a side point. Coming back to Ephesians chapter 2, is, is, there really, is there really something to this? Can we say that this is not, a result, not as a result of obedience? Well, if I could just retranslate this, just, just cut out the middleman and say what people are trying to indicate. If you are not saved by obedience, then what are you ultimately saved by? Disobedience. If you're not saved by obedience, then what people are trying to indicate is you are saved by disobedience. And so let's just read this verse 9 again, but retranslated the way most people are teaching it. In, in Hebrews, or Ephesians chapter 2 again, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God as a result of disobedience so that no one may boast. And you could just take this over to Romans chapter 4. Abraham was not saved by obedience. Abraham was saved by disobedience. Now, does this work? Is this biblical? No, it's absolutely not. Now, I understand that people, if they heard this or saw this, they would say, well, this is clearly not what I'm teaching. But I know this isn't what you want to teach, but it is. It is the inevitable conclusion when you say you're a legalist if you just stress obedience. And so, clearly this can't be, this can't be the path forward. This can't be the, the correct uh, understanding. And, and so, obedience is not legalistic. Grace does not oppose obedience. In fact, they go together. You just, you just read it the way Paul says it. And you can't come to the wrong conclusion unless you're bringing presuppositions in. So, no, obedience does not oppose grace. They go completely together. Now, that leaves us with the question, what is legalism then? And, and as we look at this, I, I'm going to mainly uh, take the Pharisees as an example because I think they're just some of the best examples. Because a lot of times when people call you legalists, they're, they're really just focusing on how the Pharisees viewed the law. And I think that may be a good way of looking at it. So what is legalism, particularly when you look at the Pharisees in the New Testament? Well, the way that I would like to just define it for today is it is coming up with laws that God has not verbalized and then binding them on everyone else as if they are God's laws or God's commandments. Now, you look at that and you think, well, I don't, I'm not sure if there's any application to this today. People probably don't even, no, people do this a lot. And in fact, I think that the people that would, that would say that obedience is legalistic, I, I think they're guilty of this very thing, which we'll get to in just a moment. But it is creating laws that God has not created and binding them on everyone else as if they are God's laws. So, so how can we do this? Well, the, one of the first ways I would say is you, when you put your traditions, when you put man-made traditions over God's commandments or over his law. Uh, in Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 1. It says, Some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you transgress, or why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? 
And I even like how in verse 2, I mean, he's quoting them. He's quoting what they say. They didn't say, why are, why are they breaking the commandment? They say, you're breaking the tradition. They even, just by their own words, they concede this is just a tradition. But what they had done is they had elevated or they had equated their traditions with God's commandments. And that's a problem. And let me just say, I think it's a pretty good tradition to wash your hands before you eat. But what had they done? They'd said, this is a religious thing. You, you are coming before God and what you're doing is you are sinning if you don't wash your hands. Well, that, that's clearly not correct. And so Jesus gets very, very clear and strict with them. Funny, strict with them as he's talking about how they're putting the tradition over God's law or even just simply equating it. Over in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 4. Matthew 23 and verse 4. This is the chapter where Jesus gives many woes to the Pharisees and the scribes. But look at the very beginning of the chapter. In verse 4, right after he says they put themselves in high, in high seats, in high chairs, chairs uh, seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. And I think that both of these passages kind of go together. Understand, he's not talking about, about God's law being a burden here. Jesus would never indicate that God's law was a burden. What had happened is the Pharisees had tried to, had basically created, converted it into a burden. And they would add things in that made it harder, that made things more difficult. And, and, and I'll just, I'll also just say as a side point, I, I don't think that the Pharisees were necessarily trying to do this when they would add these traditions in. A lot of times traditions are added in to help. They're, they're added in to expedite maybe a certain commandment. But the Pharisees had gone too far because it was no longer just expediting a commandment. It was cr making their creed or their tradition as a commandment of God. Now I think that there are di several different ways that we can do this today. You have someone who says, you know, Christians are not allowed to vote. We should not be a part of politics whatsoever. Christians shouldn't have a firearm. Christians shouldn't go and watch movies. They shouldn't go to the theater. Or, or you know, even more pointed, maybe not so much, you know, our association with the world. But, but maybe sometimes people will look more inwardly. And they'll say things like, well, a Christian, they just need to have a paper Bible in front of them. They should never use their iPhone or their iPad or anything like that. No digital things. Now, let me just say, there may be wisdom in that. There may be wisdom in some of these traditions. It may help to some degree. In fact, I think that this is a really good thing to, to maybe uh, give to kids because I don't know how well equipped they are to handle the temptation of a device in front of them. So it may be a good idea to say, no, you're just going to stick with a paper Bible for now. But has God said that? And, and no, he hasn't, obviously. But sometimes people come in and they say, no. If you are not willing to use a paper Bible, if you are not willing to leave your iPad at home, then guess what? We're going to have to withdraw from you. And that's just, whoa, now, that's taking things too far. Again, I'm not saying that there's no wisdom at all in some of these things, but you can't go too far. Go beyond what God has said. We need to make sure that we aren't taking that seat of, of, of the Pharisees and trying to, to create things, tying, the, tying things upon others, and then ultimately being a hypocrite and not, not doing the same things ourselves. I think um, one way that people do this today is exactly how we began. The person that was trying to define what legalism is in that article. They said, this is a strict adherence to rules and regulations of God. And you know what? It's opposed to grace. I, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry, actually. That is legalistic. 
Because what are these people doing? They're coming in and, you, and we already looked at what God has said about grace and obedience and how they go together. And, and what are these people saying? No, what God has said about that, that that's legalistic. Your, your understanding of that, that is legalism. No, what you're doing is, legalist, is legalistic. Because you're coming in and you're trying to say, I don't like the conclusion of this and so I'm going to change it. And this kind of goes into the next point, but I think another way that people show that they're legalistic is by being self-righteous. And what do I mean by that? Well, obviously, it's creating our own standard of righteous instead of imitating God's righteousness. Over in Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10 and verse 1, I think this is described so very clearly by Paul. When he's talking about his, his, his brethren that he cares for of Israel, a physical Israel, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. They do, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, what is he saying here? Once more, you have this notion of that knowledge, and what does that knowledge do if you're not going to use it? He's saying this knowledge that we're supposed to utilize. These people, they have a zeal for God. I'm sure they care about God's grace, but they're not coming in contact with it the way God said they were supposed to. And so what are they doing? Because they don't like exactly what the commandments are today, because they have an issue with it, they're trying to change things. Because they can't let go of circumcision well, then we're going we're gonna to add that in. God didn't. And, so, and it caused much, much contention and strife in the New Testament church in the first century because they weren't willing to just, just obey God. And instead of just obeying God, they try to make up their own rules. They try to add things in. Maybe it was something that God had commanded before. The problem is it's not something he's commanded now. So the issue is not that they were trying or, or, or that they wanted to be righteous, I think that's a good endeavor. It was that they didn't look to God for that righteousness. They couldn't because ultimately it was coming to a different conclusion than they wanted. And so when someone says something like, listen, you, that is so self-righteous of you when you say that this kind of action is sinful. That's so self-righteous of you to say that these people are sinning. I, I just kind of respond with, no, you are for using your own standard. You know what's self-righteous is, is completely ignoring what God has said you need to do and do away with to be righteous like him and saying, no, you, you can be righteous still keeping these things in your life. That's self-righteous because you've created your own standard. Someone says, you're being self-righteous for thinking that my attire is immodest. No, I think you are because you're, you're, you're judging that. You're making this conclusion that based off of your own wisdom instead of God's word. You're, you're, instead of asking, what has God's word said about this? You're saying, I don't like the conclusion you've come to. But listen, I'm all for opening the Bible and saying, what is, your, what is the discrepancy here? What is your problem? But I'll tell you, most of the time, people aren't willing to do that. And you want to know what? Because they know. They know that their position, their conclusion did not come from God's word. It came from, this is what I want. Or what he has said, that's, that's definitely what I don't want. And so I don't want to study that out. And so it's fundamentally, it is changing things because we don't like the conclusion that God has come to. And we are viewing God's commandments as, as burdensome. Well, finally, I would say it's also picking and choosing which of God's commands that we will follow 
and, and therefore enforce on others. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23. This is, a, I think, a very, very familiar and a very good passage because I think it describes something that we need to understand. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill uh, and, and cumin, but have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy, faithfulness. But th- these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. He's not saying that obedience, that they're, they're, them trying to be obedience was a problem here. Obedience is not being condemned. It's the lack of obedience. What they tried to do is partially obey God. And guess what? How God views that is it's disobedience. Plain and simple. You don't get to say, I'm willing to tithe here, but I'm not going to be, I'm not going to have mercy over here. I'm not going to have mercy on my brother. I mean, me tithing, that's, that, that's enough. That's legalistic. Is when we say, I, I, would rather do, I would rather do what I want to do than what God has said. You come to a passage like 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, or Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, when it talks about baptism and the need for it, and how that is the moment where we are converted, where we do become a Christian, and people have such issues with that. And I remember having a study with someone uh, when I was in Mississippi, and, and, and we finally got to the point where we, were, we looked at all of these passages, and then I ended with 1 Peter 3, because it's just so clear, baptism now saves you. And what did they say? I don't think God's going to hold someone accountable for not being baptized. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things that you could say there. I mean, first of all, who says, you or God? I'll tell you how I responded. I, you are saying something that, that Peter does not in 1 Peter chapter 3. So who do you think I should trust, God or you? <laughs> and what's funny is, he, I mean, he did respond correctly. He said, well, obviously God. And I was like, yeah, maybe we should both be doing that. And, Someone who says, I, I don't think God's going to hold someone accountable for this. I don't think God is really going to have an issue with someone not obeying here. So God's going to bless obedience or disobedience. He's going to reward us for disobedience. No, 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 no. That's not how this works. It is legalistic to suggest that God does not require obedience from us. It is legalistic to suggest that God does not require us to expose the deeds of darkness, as it says in Ephesians. That, that's legalism. Not trying to be a servant of God and doing everything that he has required from us. And so there's, I know that there's much more that we could say about this. That's not an exhaustive list by any means. But I do think that that is a very, a very scriptural approach to what legalism actually is. I, I started by saying, you know, if, if someone says that legalism is trying to do what God has commanded me to do, then at the end of the day, I guess I am a legalist. But, th- but that's not how it's defined, is it? In the scriptures, what it said is when you want to pick and choose what God has said and you decide, I'm going to reject this, I'm going to reject that, that, that's legalism. And so what I ask you this morning is, are you willing to let go of that if that's been you? Are you willing to just obey God, to do what he requires of you? to be a true servant or are you just going to keep on cherry picking what you want to take from from I guess just this good book of of good morals like Aesop's fables no this is the truth Jesus says I am the way the truth the life and you don't get to look at this as just some empty platitudes no this is the word that leads to eternal life
And so do you want to reject it? Or are you going to make the application? Are you willing to hear this word? Are you willing to believe, have faith, be faithful in everything that we've discussed, in everything that we have not discussed this morning, but everything that God has commanded you? And that means you're going to have to repent of things that he says to do away with. Confess, make a confession based on that belief, and confess that he is the son of the living God. Pledge your allegiance to the king and be baptized for newness of life to become a Christian. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.